Titus chapter 2, page 1198, reading from verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one may malign the Word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they may make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Four, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearance, appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Amen. We trust that God will bless His Word to us this evening. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the letter of Titus. We were looking at this letter written by Paul in uh, October-November time, and we're coming back to it tonight. When we started looking at the letter, we said that we're going to move quite slowly through it, and we're still going to do that. We're in chapter 2 tonight, and we're focusing on verses 11 to 15, though we will make reference to the verses that come before as well. And you'll find it on page 1198 of the Pew Bibles, page 1198. As I've mentioned already in church here, I got a Fitbit for Christmas. It was a present that came along with a pair of trainers, and I haven't quite worked out whether it was a less than subtle message to do a little bit more exercise. Now, you'll be glad to know that tonight I'm not going to bore you with statistics, but I've had it on every day since Christmas Day, and I've only hit the magical 10K twice. Turns out my average steps per day are a little lower than I had guessed. It must be all that tea we ministers drink. The, the, the thing about a Fitbit and many other things is that their motivators, getting a Fitbit and a pair of trainers, has planted the idea in my mind that I, that I need to do some more exercise the challenges that I have with family members and friends motivate me not only to, to keep active, but to beat them. It's incredible what you'll do just to get a few extra steps racked up as well. But the, the thing about a Fitbit, though, is that it's only a motivator. While buying one might seem like a good investment and something that will help, you, you could just not wear it. The challenge and desire 
to beat family members and friends will presumably peter out over time. What a Fitbit or, or anything else that motivates us to do something doesn't have is the power to change us. There's one exception, though, and that's the gospel. When God works in our lives, the gospel comes and not only changes us, but it also motivates us. The gospel isn't just fire insurance for a rainy day. It's not just insurance cover for our deaths. It's good news for our last day or the last day, but it's also good news for the next day. It's good news for tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. What this part of Titus is telling us is that it's the gospel that changes our situation before a holy God, but it's also the gospel that shapes and molds us. One writer says that after we become Christians, we become learners in the school of grace. And it's a school that we'll never graduate from on this side of eternity. The gospel, you see, teaches us to live godly lives as we wait for the return of Jesus. Paul, as he writes to Titus, has in view the two greatest and most important moments in history. There might be a lot of contenders for the two most important moments in history, but Paul says that one has happened and one is yet to happen. The first moment is the incarnation or birth of Jesus, Jesus coming down into our world. The second moment is Jesus' return, and that hasn't happened yet. What Paul is encouraging his readers to do is to live in light of both Jesus' first coming and his second coming. He mentions both in these verses. He's saying that these two events are motivators for us as we live for God and love those around us. As we've said already, we're picking up where we left off in Titus last time where we were looking at instructions for the church. Paul tells Titus that older men are to teach younger men, older women are to teach younger women. The question that we're left with after reading the first 10 verses in chapter 2 is, how do we do these things? One option is to understand the instructions as rules. It's an option called legalism. And this is what legalism sounds like. Legalism says, be self-controlled. And the response is, I, I can't on my own strength. And legalism's reply to that is, we'll just try a little bit harder. Do you see how crushing that option is? And do you see its potential to leave us feeling as though we're just hopeless Christians? The other option is far better, and it's the true option. It's the option which looks at the instructions in the light of the gospel. Now, Paul does this a lot in his New Testament letters. In Ephesians and Colossians, for example, those books are structured in a certain way. He talks about what God has done, and then he talks about how believers are to live. But in this section, he's just flipped it around. He talks in verses 1 to 10 about how believers are to live. And then in verses 11 to 15, he talks about what God has done. In these verses we're looking at tonight, he's talking about what motivates us as we try to live for God. And so we're going to look at this section, and we're going to highlight two motivators for us as we live as Christians in this fallen world. The first is Jesus' first appearing, and the second is Jesus' second appearing. Let's think then about Jesus' first appearing being a motivation for us in the Christian life. Let's read verses 11 and 12 again together. 
verses 11 to 14 are actually all one sentence in the original, but let's just read 11 and 12 together just now. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. In the old Anglican prayer book, Titus 2, uh, 11 to 15, is a reading for Christmas Day. Perhaps seems strange as we read it at first, but actually it makes more sense when you scratch a little bit deeper. What Paul is talking about in verse 11 is the coming of Jesus. He's talking about the Virgin Mary giving birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. He's talking about Jesus' life and ministry on earth. He's talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. The whole sequence of events can be summed up as an act of grace. John Stott puts it well when he says, God's saving grace was brightly displayed in his lowly birth, in his gracious words and compassionate deeds, and above all in his atoning death. God showed grace as Jesus came, and Jesus himself is described as being full of grace and truth by John in his gospel. Why is Jesus first appearing a motivator though? Well, very simply, it's through what he did in his first appearing that we can know God personally. Through his first appearing, we can be ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. It's the good news of the gospel that God has come among us and that salvation has now appeared. Now, let's stop for a moment and think about this phrase to all men that we see in verse 11. What does Paul mean by this phrase? Is it that all men, everyone in the world will be saved? A simple reading of the New Testament tells us that that isn't the case. Paul and others, including Jesus, are really clear that many people will be condemned on the final day of judgment. It's important to read this verse in context. Paul has just been addressing different groups of people within the church. He ends by addressing slaves. Now he says that grace brings salvation to all people. And what he means is all classes and all types of people. The grace of God that has appeared brings salvation to men and women, young and old, those who are slaves and those who are free. So Jesus' first appearing is a motivator because it's through his first appearing that we can have a relationship with God. It's open to everyone, no one is excluded, but it's clear from other parts of the New Testament that not everyone will believe. What does Jesus' first appearing teach us, though? How does this message of the gospel actually motivate us as we live for Jesus now? Look again at verse 12. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Jesus' first appearing teaches us to say no and to say yes. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It also teaches us to say yes to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The problem with us living in this fallen world is that we often get our yeses and nos mixed up. At times we find it easier to say yes to ungodliness and worldly passions and no to self-controlled and upright godly lives. And that's very much the spirit of our age. It's been the spirit of every age. Do whatever you want, take part in whatever ungodliness you want, 
as long as it makes you feel happy. But the grace of God has come, and it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Things that we thought we were okay because everyone else is doing it, now come under the rule of Jesus, and what he says goes. You see, these verses will have different applications for us all, but the punch comes in what God is doing in our lives, doing in our hearts. It might be that in 2018, he wants to change us in ways that we don't expect. It might be that he wants, to, to, wants us to turn our backs on ungodliness that we haven't even spotted in our own hearts. C.S. Lewis paints a picture of Christians as houses. He says that when God comes in initially, we perhaps understand what he's doing. He stops the drains from leaking, but we're not surprised by that because we knew those kind of jobs needed done. Lewis goes on, though, to say that actually God intends to start knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. He writes, what on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little college, cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The good news is, though, that God working in our lives, though it may be painful and unexpected, his grace has appeared. And the appearing of his grace is the best and most powerful news in the whole world. Jesus is better and fuller and richer than anything that has ever been created and any idol that we could ever worship. It's as we look back to the gospel, back to the fact that we're ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, that we're motivated to live in a way that honors God. And it's as we look back to the gospel that God begins to shape and mold us into the palaces that he would have us to be. So Jesus' first appearing is a motivator for us because it's through his first appearing that he's made a way to God. And as we think about what he's done for us, we're surely motivated to live lives that honor him. The second motivator that Paul points, to us, points out to us is Jesus' second appearing. He wants believers to live in light of the fact that Jesus, who once appeared briefly on the stage of human history, will one day reappear. It's worth our while at this point to read again verses 11 to 14. It'll help us understand the flow of Paul's thought. Paul writes, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good." So it's in verse 13 that Paul mentions the second appearing of Jesus. He appeared in grace, but he will reappear in glory. In fact, this future appearance of glory is the object of our Christian hope. That, that's what Paul says. We're waiting for the blessed hope. How does the second appearing of Jesus motivate us, though? Well, if nothing else, it tells us that what we do now actually matters. It's not that God has saved us 
and that means we can live in whatever way we please. He wants us to live, as we've already said, in a way that honors him. As we live and wait for the second coming of Jesus, what's going to motivate us is our status. If you look carefully at verse 14, you get a sense of the value that God places on those he loves. Verse 14 tells us that Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. You see, this is the great purpose of God in between the two most significant events in history, to call out and to purify a people that, we, that he will call his own. If you're here tonight and God has worked in your life, know that you are a royal child. You're a child of the king. Some of you have maybe been watching the second series of The Crown on Netflix. It's this modern dramatization of the reign of Queen Elizabeth II. In the first season, some of the story uh, was portrayed as to, as to how the queen became queen, and that involves some stories about the queen mother. I don't think that it appears in the crown, but there's a story told of the late queen mother. When her two girls, Princess Elizabeth, the current queen, and Princess Margaret were young, they were going to a party or to a visit, and she would remind them before they left, royal children have royal manners. Royal children have royal manners. It was a reminder that their behavior needed to match their status. Their status came first. Their behavior was supposed to follow. These verses are teaching the same thing to Christians. God has made us part of his people. Through Jesus, we're members of the royal family of the universe. That's our status, and we can't lose it. But our behavior should match who we are. Royal children have royal manners. The thing about living in a way that acknowledges our status is that it's going to be attractive to outsiders. That's what Paul hopes and wants and prays for as he writes to Titus. He wants royal children to have royal manners so that, verse 10, in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. The motivation the second coming of Jesus provides is that our final day is secure. If we've trusted Jesus in this life, then we have the hope of heaven. This section is also telling us that what we do now matters. We can't just sit back and put our feet up. Royal children have royal manners. You see, as we live in between these two comings, one of the questions that we're supposed to ask ourselves is, what am I going to do with my life? Now, it's a slightly morbid way to think about it, but on a gravestone, there are normally two dates. In between the dates, there's a dash. As we think about living between Jesus' first and his second coming, surely we're supposed to ask ourselves, what am I going to do with the dash? What am I going to do with my life? As Peter just prayed, this is our brief moment in history. Will it be the case that we're happy enough just to be saved but to do nothing about it afterwards? Or will it be the case that we fully comprehend our status as God's own people, that we'll act on the power of the gospel come what may? The gospel is good news for the last day, but it's also good news for the next day. It's the motivator for us. It's the engine we're sitting behind as we live in this world. It's through the power of the gospel that we're able to be what God calls us to be in verses 1 to 10. So he asked the question, 
hire older men to be dignified and mature. Hire older women to be reverent and teachers of the young. Hire young men to control themselves. Hire younger women to love their husbands and children. By doing what is impossible physically, but possible spiritually. By looking in the opposite direction at the same time. How can we be these things? By saying, thinking something like, Jesus has done this. He has lived and died and rose again. And he's coming back, so I need to live for him. That's how his first and second coming motivate us. Through the gospel that we're able to be all these things because in the gospel, we don't look to our strength but to God's. The gospel teaches us to live godly lives as we wait for the return of Jesus. His two comings motivate us. This section ends with verse 15. It's sort of the the summary of everything that has come. It's Paul writing to Titus and telling him to stick at it. Look at what Paul writes. He says, These then are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, Titus, keep at it. Keep teaching the gospel and keep telling believers to live lives that honor God. But what's Paul's rationale in saying that? I think it's that this is a good way to go. It's as though he's implicitly saying to Titus, Titus, you you can build your life on these things. The people that you teach can build their lives on these things. You can build your life on the first and second coming of Jesus. You can trust him and look to what he did in his first coming, and you can live in a way that honors him before his second coming. At some point in this series, and I'm sure that we've said that Paul is writing about the good life. This is his vision of what a life that is consumed by following Jesus looks like. And it's a life that is better than every other option. It's better than the option of living as though God is not there. It's better than living in a legalistic way. It's better than living in a way that says, what we do now doesn't matter. It might be painful as God works in us, and throws up a new courtyard here and there, but it is the truly good life. There's no better way to go. You may be here tonight, and you may be wondering what this Christian life thing is all about. You don't really understand the connection between the gospel and living for Jesus. It may be the case that you haven't understood the gospel properly. If that's the case, We'd love you to come to Christianity Explored tomorrow night to, to explore these things, to talk about these things, to try and understand the claims of Jesus again. You may be here tonight and you have heard about Jesus' first and second appearing over and over again, but you've never responded in faith. The thing about his second appearing is that it's a threat to you if you don't know him. In his first coming, Jesus appeared in grace, but in his second, he will appear in glory. And when he appears, everyone will bow, and he'll separate those who know him and those who don't. So tonight, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you need to get right with him before his second appearing. And you can do that because of his first appearing. You can look to him and his work on the cross on your behalf and say, I want to pin my life and my hope on you. There's no better way to go. There's no better way to go And there's no better motivator for us than the gospel. It might look to 
to many things in 2018 to, to motivate us to do lots of different things. But the gospel is good news for the last day, and it's also good news for tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that. And it's the gospel that we all need to keep going back to again and again because it's the power of God unto salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you tonight for the old, old story. I want to thank you that we can come back again and again to the gospel, to Jesus first appearing, and for all that he's done for us. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us all to live in light of his second appearing. We pray that if we know you, that we would live as royal children with royal manners. We pray that you'd help us to live for Jesus in our day-to-day lives. And we pray, too, for those who don't yet know you. We pray that you'd help them to understand who Jesus is and their need to follow him. We pray that you bless us as a church family, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.